Welcome to Transformation Church RVA. This sermon is from our series, Worship, Living in Awe of God. We're exploring the very foundations of worship, including the preparation of worship, the power of worship, and the protocol of worship. Worship is central to the life of our church because we are to live and do all things to the glory of God. God alone is worthy of our worship as we live in awe of His mercy and majesty. Our scripture reading is from Psalm 40. If you're using the Pew Bible in the uh, in the back of the pew, you'll find this on page 493. And of course, if you don't have a Bible at home, that is our gift to you. You take that home with you. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. And then the words of our Lord Jesus in John chapter, 20, John chapter 12, verse 32. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is the word of God. Uh, time, time out, time out. Just think for one second about what it means to have the word of God revealed to us in the scripture and what people have sacrificed yeah. so that we can have the scriptures in our own language. And when you hear, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, that's much better. Amen. Mm. Thank you, brother. <laughs> Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. It's a powerful quote from John Piper that captures the very heart of today's sermon. If you don't know me, I'm, I'm not Pastor Carl. Uh, my name is Ian. I'm the outreach director here. And it's my honor to uh, share the word of God with you this morning. We're in week two of our series, Worship, Living in Awe of God. Last week, we talked about the preparation of worship and the importance of preparing our hearts for worship, our homes for worship, and for the hour that we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship as a church body. Worship is central to the life of our church because Jesus died so that we would worship. Today's sermon is called The Power of Worship. The power of worship is truly the power of the Holy Spirit who has made us come alive in worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, while I'll also be diving into John 12, we'll be starting today in the first passage that Elder Bill read, which is Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. And when Pastor Carl first gave me this passage, I was super excited because it's the Psalms are really a big song, a big song book in a lot of ways. And um, I, I love music. Each chapter is its own song, and the people of God, the people of Israel, would would actually sing these songs in corporate worship. The ch many churches still today actually sing entire psalms set to music, and many of the songs that we sang today. And just in general, are derived from the book of Psalms. But the Psalms are more than simply songs, though, in that 
they, just like all the other books of the Bible, are the infallible and inerrant word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. The book contains prayers, petitions, and praises to the Lord, prophecies of the Lord, and exhortations directed to the Lord's people. The Psalms were not written by one human author, but were written by many folks, including Asaph, Moses, and most prominently, and the one who wrote the passage we're going to read today, David, King David, uh, who is the author of Psalm 40. And from this passage in Psalms, we see the power of the Holy Spirit deliver the psalmist from the desolate pit to worship the Lord. The first point I want to make is that it is God alone who saves, so it is God alone who is worthy of our worship. I want to start off by painting a picture of alienation and utter helplessness because I want you to feel the gravity of everything that follows, which informs our worship. The gravity of the bleak condition of our souls apart from God. So during Apollo 11, back in 1969, if you can't tell, I wasn't quite born yet. So any of you that, uh, that were around to see it on TV, I want to hear all about it. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, we're familiar with that. That's the first time men walked on the moon. Uh, that was, uh, what was it, uh, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, uh, one, one giant step for man, one giant leap for mankind, something like that. I think, I think that's it. Um, but a lot of people don't, a lot of people don't remember that there was one other guy on that mission, and that was Michael Collins. And he had to stay to pilot the spacecraft while they were on the moon. And during that time, he actually flew solo around the moon, did a whole orbit, and lost radio contact with the Earth during that time. And reflecting back on it, he said, I am truly I am I'm alone now, truly alone, and absolutely isolated from any known life. I am it. If a count were taken, the score would be three billion plus two over on the other side of the moon, and one plus God knows what on this side. Have you ever felt this alienation before? What about this level of helplessness? I mean, think about it. Michael Collins, right? in a spacecraft the dark side of the moon right the sun reflects off the one side he's the dark side of the moon lost radio contact with with houston there's no houston we have a problem if something goes wrong that's it he loses oxygen that's it utterly helpless alienated and so in verse one and two here david paints a picture of our alienation from God and total inability to contribute to our salvation. So we see verses, uh, picking back up verse one, it says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay. You see, the main difference between what Michael Collins' experience in space and what David describes here in the text is that Michael Collins was still alive while the psalmist is crying out from death. Now, why would that be the case? Why would I say that? Because he's obviously alive, right? He, he wrote this. Well, the Old Testament often uses the word pit figuratively to signify death. 
uh, you know, the pit, the grave, Sheol. These are images that, that, that call to mind a place of, of death. And we see in verse 2 that you know, this desolate pit with muddy clay. So what this would call to mind for the original audience was, so Israel, they, they need water. Uh, it's, you know, it's a desert. So they would build out these, these cisterns or pits in, the, in rock and build like channels of water to go in. It would be kind of short at the top, kind of wide at the bottom. And so as water would come in, it would bring with it some mud and silt too. And after they got done with that pit and just kind of moved along, it would be left with nothing but, but mud. And it was almost like quicksand-like mud. And so sometimes you actually see a couple instances in the Old Testament with, with Joseph and with Jeremiah, who if I had more time to, to, uh, <laughs> to, to talk about it, man, they point so well to Jesus and what we'll see later. But I would encourage you to read those stories. But what's fascinating, though, is that people would use those pits as almost like dungeons, almost to, to trap people there and really kind of leave them for dead. And so if someone were to fall in or be thrown in, it was virtually impossible to escape. I mean, you're talking quicksand, a little bit of light up at the top. There's no way you're climbing on those walls. You, you can't get out alienated and utterly helpless to do anything about it. We know today that sin alienated us from God. The book of Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. And we often think of that eternally, and that is true. Hell is a real place for unrepentant sinners who have not turned to Christ. However, we don't often reflect on how everyone who has ever lived except Jesus was or is spiritually dead. Everyone under the sound of my voice was born spiritually dead, deep in the desolate pit and sinking in the muddy clay, utterly helpless and unable to be made right with God, trapped and enslaved to sin. This, this right here, this is the starting point of our worship. For the Christians in here, do you remember what your life was like before the Lord saved you? Before the Lord heard your cry for help, don't ever forget what the Lord has delivered you from. If you are saved, it is because God resurrected you from spiritual, from spiritual death, plucked you from the fires of hell, pulled you out from the pit. You have been born again. That's what that means. And thanks be to God that he did not leave us dead in the pit. Thanks be to God that he is all powerful, that he is a miracle working God. The story does not end here because what you see in this psalm is a picture of what it looks like to have been made alive by the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 goes on and says, And set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. God does not leave it up to us to try to climb our way out of the pit. That's good news. <laughs> How could a dead man climb out? The very fact that the psalmist speaks of waiting patiently for the Lord, speaks of a faith alien to him, given to him by God. Patience relies on trust. Trust that the need will be met and trust in the one that will supply that need. And this is why we can be patient in life. 
Apart from God, there's no guarantee that our needs will be met and that anyone is trustworthy enough to provide you with them, which leaves yourself to provide. And if I know myself, I can't provide for all my needs. I'm not sufficient. The Lord alone is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He supplies everything that we need, even our faith. And if you're a Christian today, how does that patience in the Lord, that waiting on the Lord, how does that express itself in your life right now? If you're not a Christian today, wouldn't you want to trust in a God that is worthy of and supplies patience amidst suffering? Patience in the place of death? And it's that powerful faith given to us by the grace of God that causes us to cry out to the Lord out of the place of death. You know, the prayer that God always hears from a sinner is a prayer of repentance and salvation. Verse 1 shows God's disposition to our prayers when it says he turns to us turns toward the repentant sinner. Now, you might just blow by this, but let me tell you why that's significant. God always, always turns away from sin. He is holy, cannot be in the presence of sin. He is perfectly righteous and good. So how is it that God would hear the prayer of a sinner and toward, turn toward him or her? How is that possible? Because we know God always hears the prayer of a repentant sinner. How? How does that happen? It's because that repentant sinner has been made alive by the Holy Spirit and reconciled by Jesus Christ to the Father. That's good news. God hears our prayers because of Jesus. That goes for when you first got saved, and that goes for your prayers today. How should this affect our prayer life? Should it cause reverence, boldness, boldly approaching the throne, knowing what Jesus has done for us? And while we'll only be going through verse three today, if you read through the rest of the psalm, you'll see that life is still challenging for the psalmist. But he stands in confidence because he knows he has been rescued from alienation to God and is no longer helpless. Because it is God alone who saves, it is God alone who is worthy of our worship. The second point I want to make is that it's the power of God that causes worship. Many of y'all know I love music. Um, I was actually a music major in college, and while playing music is really fun, I really love songwriting, so much so that I kind of did it at the expense of uh, my engineering uh, <laughs> classes when I first got to school. It was, uh, it was time to switch that major. The report card was, was telling me so. <laughs> I don't know if we got report cards in college, but you know what I mean. Um, I love music. And I remember a conversation I had with one of my friends in college who was just an absolute wizard on guitar, just an incredible musician, really, really good. And what he described, though, was that it was really hard to find something to write about, something compelling. And oftentimes, songwriters write from their own experience. 
Um, that's how it works a lot of times for me. I don't really write songs as much anymore. But one of my favorite songwriters, Stevie Wonder, he wrote a song about the birth of his first child, Aisha. It's that song, Isn't She Lovely? Right? Y'all know that song? The Isn't She Lovely? It's a good one. And you don't want me singing it. You want Stevie singing it. But it's just so beautiful. And y'all, I mean, you can really grasp the love that he has for his daughter and what her arrival into the world meant to him. But, you know, my friend, he, he, he said he really didn't have any major experience he could think of, any real pain or struggle, any one moment of incredible joy. And you can tell when a songwriter really means it, right? That's, that's hard to fake well. It really is. I, it's really hard to fake well. But that's only half the equation with songwriting, right? What about the content? What about, what, what about the music? Right? The lyrics, that's what makes it compelling. But what about the music? The, the melodies and the harmonies, the rhythms. A songwriter knows how to expertly craft that so that the song comes to life. And when we look at verse 3, it says, He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Who was the songwriter? Who was, who was it that wrote this new song that was put in the psalmist's mouth? God, yeah. It's a, it's a Sunday school answer. God, right? That's always the right answer. Well, the text says God put a new song in the psalmist's mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. God calls his worship. What else could the words of this new song be if not about the deliverance that David experienced? But what would the melody and the harmony sound like? What rhythms would he have danced to? I know, you're, I know half of y'all are probably thinking I'm crazy up here. <laughs> are, you, are you following me or are you thinking just what are you talking about? Well, what I'm talking about is that the good news he speaks of must be accompanied by a life that looks radically different. Think about it. He was just deep down in the pit, a place of death. Now he's been brought out by the Lord and his steps are secure on the rock. That's quite a transformation. And what would it look like if he was just talking about his deliverance but just actively hanging out by the pit, just enthralled by the darkness, seeing how close to the edge he could get without getting in there, all while singing about the goodness of God and how God delivered him. Singing about how God saved him, but accompanying it with music, that twists its meaning. That's quite the juxtaposition, right? That's quite the contradiction. So let me ask you, does the content of his song match the music of your life? I'm going to repeat that. Does the content of his song, the good news of salvation in Christ alone, by grace through faith, does that content, does that match the music of your life? It's the power of the Holy Spirit that causes us to worship. It's the Holy Spirit that applies salvation to us, not only in bringing us to life, but also in bearing fruit. It's evident that for the psalmist, the lyrics of God's new song match the music in his life 
as it's now lived in worship of God. God calls his worship. The the last part of verse 3 here, it says, Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. What is it that they're seeing and fearing but the power of the living God at work in the life of the believer? And this series is called Living in Awe of of God. Do y'all know what awe is? Everybody say awe. Awe. When we stand in awe of God, we marvel at his majesty, at his holiness. God is set apart. God is holy. God is good. God is all-powerful. And this fear that David describes is the fear that accompanies awe. The fear that says, what kind of power could make that dead man alive? What kind of power could turn that woman from being consumed by herself to being consumed in worship to her creator, now singing a new song? I really like this quote. I actually heard this yesterday. It was was pretty convenient. Uh, Colin Smith once said that to fear God is to give weight to him. I think oftentimes we're just tempted to ignore God. But you can't ignore what he has done in people's lives. I've seen it. I can can scan this room and I've seen what God has done. And I continue to see what God has done. And that causes worship. And we know from the book of Galatians that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. That's we, we, we talked about that. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Some people are just naturally more faithful or more patient than others, but the life of a believer is marked by these characteristics because they're set apart from the world. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that causes us to worship. The Holy Spirit, the living water that continues to fuel this fruit in our lives as we continue in our sanctification and the Holy Spirit that brings this fruit to a ripeness for our glorification. This new song of our lives is animated by the Holy Spirit and this worship does not end with us but continues in celebration to all of the many elect that are to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit because it is God alone who saves. So practically... Why don't we sing like we mean it? And honestly, I didn't expect, I mean, y'all were singing this morning. Like, worship was amazing. I heard voices carrying out. So I don't even even know if this sermon is for y'all today. Because we came to worship today. But when we sing like we mean it, others witness the power of God at work. And I mean that both figuratively and literally as far as the the singing, right? We should live our lives in a way that puts God on display for all to behold. So that when we share the gospel, our lives confirm that we have been changed by it. But what if, in a literal sense, when we sing here in church, what if we sang like we really believe the truth of what we're singing? What if it caused us to shout, to weep, to dance? To truly feel the gravity of being brought from the desolate pit to standing on the solid rock that is Christ Jesus. 
where all of the ground is sinking sand. I would encourage you, sing loudly when we sing. Don't you make Demetria or Greg today beg to give it all you have. That's not their job. <laughs> Our job is to show up and worship. And, and I can remember different experiences with worship, um, different ones that come to mind for me. So I, I remember when I first went off to college, <laughs> I was, man, I was, I was scared. I was going to a secular university and people were telling me, oh boy, you better be careful. And you're going, you're going to lose your faith. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't want to lose my faith. I love Jesus. I don't, what, what does that, what does that mean? So when I got there, I was scared. I was like, man, I don't, how's this going to work? And I remember I went to, I went to church um, the first Sunday I was there, and I saw a whole group of just sold-out young students at, uh, at the University of Virginia. And I was like, man, I want to I be, be where they're at. Um, and so I joined Chi Alpha, which was the, the campus ministry I was in, kind of like a church, like, at the university. It's hard to explain. But they have like a large group, kind of like we have church on a Sunday morning. And I remember they, they held it that day right on the center of the campus, right in the center of this secular university. And I walk in and there are four to 500 students. And I mean, I was blown away and worship started and I'm hearing all these voices singing. And all of a sudden I'm like, man, I'm not alone. This, this is true for them, just like it's true for me. It's God who causes worship. I remember another time. I, I went through a season, a really dark season, my, my second year of college. I was depressed. Um, I was uh, really just reeling in doubt. Um, I just, I, I, was, I was in some type of way. I was really messed up. And... And yet I walked in the church one morning and I remember it was the song, Because He Lives, uh, we sang. And man, I, <laughs> that could not have came at a better time for me. I just started weeping. I mean, I grew up in the country, right? We, we, don't, we don't cry in public. Uh, come on. But, and yet... What the Lord showed me is, hey, you need to humble yourself to, to cry when you're feeling just overwhelmed by the presence of God. And it was, you know, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living because he lives. And as people were declaring these truths, I'm just, <laughs> I, 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 can't, I'm just I can't even get it out. I can't even choke it out. It was just, it was powerful for me. That's a moment I can still look back on and say God was faithful. God calls that worship. In the last of these times that, I, that I'll share today, I remember back in March 2020, um, the month I got married, but also the month that like the world seemed to kind of end here in America. It was, it was crazy. Um, there was a lot of division and, um, I mean, people just acting foolish. Um, and it was just a really, really hard time and a really hard time to be in ministry. 
Um, and we had to make the hard call to worship online only uh, for a couple months. And, and yet, when we came back May 31st, I didn't even have to look that date up. I remembered that date because it was so powerful to me. Because I'm standing there, either in the back corner there or in the booth there. Oftentimes, you'll see me standing back there during the service. And I just looked across the room and just saw the worship of God's people, of my family, gathered together, singing praises to God. And I was overcome then. I started to cry. I couldn't help myself because I saw just that unity there. And, and I, I mean, I think today, oftentimes, and I would encourage you to do this, as we're singing, don't close your eyes in worship. Scan the room. Look around. Look around you. Look at what God has done in other people's lives. I think of people like, like Allison Collins there in the back. I think of, of Yukiko. I think of Mr. Jerry. I know what's going on. And I know how God has been faithful to them. And when they sing these songs, this is not a joke. This is, this is the truth. And you can feel it. I, I, think of my, I think of my brother Trey, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do him dirty and call him out, even though he's not here to defend himself. He, he, he can't sing. But when he sings, <laughs> but when he sings, it is a joyful noise. It is a joyful noise to God because he's declaring what God and God alone did for him. Let's sing like we mean it. And to that point as well, talk to other people here. Get to know their story. Get to know what the Lord has done for them. And a great time for that that's coming up is, uh, is the Wednesday night prayer services we'll be having next month. We'll be having time of fellowship, eating dinner together. Talk with other folks. Ask them what their testimony is and be prepared to give yours. Uh, <laughs> you got to get, get your elevator pitch going for that because no one wants to hear a 45-minute uh, testimony. I've learned that from experience. Uh, when, I, when I get talking, it's, it's hard to shut me up. Um, but so moving along here, because it is God alone who saves, it is God alone who is worthy of our worship. It is God alone who causes us to worship. And we're about to see that the many that will see and fear extends to the nations. And so go ahead and turn to John 12, and we're going to pick up in verse 20. And while you're turning there, before I move on to my third point, I want to lay some context for the gospel of John. We call this book a gospel because it's a true account of the good news of, of Jesus Christ, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just like the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And at this point in the life of Jesus, we're closing in on his crucifixion. Um, if, you, if you read just a little bit above, you can see it comes right after Palm Sunday, where he, he rode in triumphantly, our, our King and Messiah riding in, only, be, only to be killed on a cross five days later. And Jerusalem at this present moment was flooded by many people, in town who were there to celebrate the Passover festival, which comes from the book of Exodus. Uh, God passed over the judgment due his people by the blood of the lamb. So with that in mind, let's read verses 20 through 22. And it says, now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, sir, we want to see Jesus. 
Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. What I want you to note here is that there are Greeks present, Gentiles, people who were not Jews. The reason I want you to remember this is because God is to be worshipped by all nations. He is the creator of all of these nations. And he deserves the worship due his name from all of these nations. And many people had begun to realize by this point that Jesus must be the Messiah. Right? They've heard as many miracles and, and teachings and seen the signs and wonders. Which explains why the people welcome him as king on Palm Sunday. Many of the Jews were looking for a political Messiah. One who would restore the nation of Israel to greatness amongst the nations of the world. And the Old Testament is full of prophecies of, of the Messiah reigning prosperity for the people of God and justice being executed all over the world. This, this is true. Yet what we're about to see a little bit later is that the power of Jesus, at least at this hour, is demonstrated much differently. Our king wears a crown of thorns. The third point I want you to hear today is that the power of worship is demonstrated by dying to ourselves. Let's pick back up in John 12, verses 23 through 26. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, I'm not sure how much y'all know about early church history. Um, it's not, not one of those subjects you find on the, on the New York Times bestseller list, but one thing that marked this period was martyrdom, where people actually died as a result of being a Christian. There was intense persecution of Christians for, for many parts of that time period, and you know this was shown by Christians thrown to lions in the Roman Colosseum. Christians burned. Christians sawed in two. Like, this is really gruesome stuff. Many Christians suffered and died for believing the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet they persisted in singing that new song the Lord had given them through their lives and in the message they proclaimed, even if that meant death. There are many Christians around the world, even today, in places like China, North Korea, Nigeria, all, all over the world, who continue to be persecuted and die for their faith. Why? Why would a Christian become a martyr? Why would the gospel be worth dying for? Because our God is worthy of worship. Amen. Do you know what's so incredible about the persecution of the early church and the persecution of, of Christians in China and North Korea, these, these nations today? The number of people converted to Christianity despite the persecution. That's amazing. So many people came to faith in the early church period that Robert Louis Wilkin, professor emeritus at UVA, my, my alma mater, I was excited to, to find this. 
He said there were fewer than 10,000 Christians by the year 100. That's 0.017% of the Roman population, a fraction of a fraction. And yet there were 6 million Christians, 10% of the Roman population by the year 300. What accounts for that kind of explosion? The power of worship caused by God and God alone, who saves, demonstrated by dying to ourselves. Now, we don't face this type of martyrdom here. Um, So I'm not asking you to go out and and die on Jeff Davis or wherever um, for being a Christian. no one, no one should be seeking actively to, to die. The Lord has given us life to live for the time being. Um, and yet, you know, I would love actually to see our church send out missionaries to hard to reach places because the gospel is worth it. Our, our God is worthy of worship and glory received by the nations. But what does this mean for us that stay behind, that stay here in America. I love this quote from Jerome, one of the early church fathers, and and he said, martyrdom does not consist only in dying for one's faith. Martyrdom also consists in serving God with love and purity of heart every day of one's life. Verse 24, Jesus said, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. What fruit is produced in your life as you die to yourself daily? The only reason we can die to ourselves is that the Holy Spirit produces fruit in our lives. He causes us to worship. And yet we must die to ourselves if we are to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in verse 25, The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What does Jesus mean by that? The one who loves his faith will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. We are cursed if we are comfortable in this world. Many people say they're blessed and highly favored when they have the things of this world, which, praise God, everything that we have ultimately comes from him. And yet, how many of y'all today know that if our jobs, status, material possessions, If our incomes, if our politics, any of these things, if they take our eyes off of Jesus, they're curses. Only God is worthy of our worship. Only God. If if anyone serves Jesus, the Father will honor him. Eternity in the presence of our Lord, where we'll be completely cleansed from our sin. Totally in awe. That's our prize, but only If we die to ourselves, you can't have glory without death. You can't be saved and refuse to repent. If we're to serve Jesus, we must follow him. Our king wears a crown of thorns. Let that sink in. The power of worship is demonstrated by dying to ourselves. Jesus went to the cross. Are you willing to die to yourself? See, death is the catalyst for God's plan of salvation. 
The last point I want to make is that Jesus died so that we would worship. Jesus willingly descended into the pit so that he could draw you out of it. We've come full circle, right? That's, that's kind of where we started in the Psalms. In Psalm 40, verse 1 through 3, we first saw how God alone saves us from the pit. So God alone is worthy of our worship. Second, it's the power of God that causes worship. A new song in our mouths, a gospel message accompanied by a transformed life. True celebration that extends to the nations. Third, we see how the power of worship is demonstrated by dying to ourselves, actively putting our sin to death. And all of this, all of this, all of what I have said so far, it falls flat if Jesus did not die for us. Jesus died so that we would worship. Picking back up in verse 27, it said, Jesus said, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? You know, what's so striking about this passage? We see Jesus was troubled by what was to come. Jesus being truly God and truly man has a human nature along with his divine nature. Jesus was about to bear the full weight and consequences for the sin of all who trust in him. Can you imagine how that must feel? Could you do it? No. <laughs> that's, a, that's an easy answer there. And we know that Jesus is God. And yet the amazing thing about the incarnation, when Jesus became human, that we learn in Philippians is that when he came down from heaven, emptied himself, and he took on the form of a servant. Jesus, by whom everything that was created exists, came down and dwelled among us as a human. Church, we are so loved that the Son of God thought we were worth it to come down and experience the ultimate humility of all the weaknesses and temptations of a human, live a perfect life, and go to the cross on our behalf. And the troubled soul he was experiencing is not just because of the physical death he would experience. A lot of people died of crucifixions. No one else died for the sins of the world. <laughs> Jesus felt the weight of knowing that he would bear the full wrath of God owed to us and would be cut off from his presence. Jesus willingly descended into the pit so that he would draw you out of it Jesus died so we would worship. And I, I can't help myself. I, I love moments in the Bible where the author explains what was just said. I don't, I don't know. Maybe 
Maybe y'all are Bible scholars, but I, I tell you what, sometimes I'm just left scratching my head. What, what does that mean? But verse 33, well, John gives us exactly what that means. He said, Jesus said that as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. And you can see the crowd does not know what to make of what Jesus is saying. They have no idea how, how does all this work. Remember, this was right after Jesus' triumphal entry to Jerusalem. The people were expecting a conquering king, a political Messiah. They don't understand at this point that the glory and power of the Messiah, Jesus, would be showcased by the intense suffering and death he would experience. While the Old Testament has many examples of the Messiah ruling with power, there are also passages that show that the Messiah would suffer. You can see the people there struggling with how to understand what Jesus is saying. The triumphant king would suffer and die. God receiving glory from the death of the Messiah? We thought he would live forever. How does that work? John makes it clear that Jesus was fulfilling prophecies found in the book of Isaiah which you'll see right after this passage, starting in verse 37. It's pretty explicit. But it's fascinating because what Jesus is laying out to everyone is that he, that Jesus is the suffering servant that the prophet Isaiah described. As I, as I come to a closed worship team, you can, you can come on up. Um, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth... I will draw all people to myself. What you may not know here is that Jesus is drawing from Isaiah 52, 13. Go and look this up after and then read all from there all the way through Isaiah 53, my favorite passage of scripture. And in that verse, it says, see, my servants will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. How many of y'all know today that Jesus was successful? Look around you and see how we've gathered to worship. Jesus died so we would worship. What they don't see is that the greatest show of power that this world has ever seen is Jesus Christ put to death on the cross being raised from the dead after three days, conquering death and the grave. This is the power of our worship. This is how we can worship. Jesus Christ was successful. We know his death was sufficient and acceptable to God because he truly rose from the grave. He rose again. He was physically brought up from the pit. Remember that pit we talked about before? For us, that was spiritual death. For Jesus, that was physical death. He was physically brought up from the pit. The wages of sin is death. Jesus took on our sins, died in our place, descending to the pit. His resurrection from the pit is our resurrection. Do you understand this today? 
Death has no claim on us. The pit has no claim on us because of our union with Jesus Christ who has defeated the grave and was raised by the Holy Spirit. It's that same Messiah who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on that Palm Sunday. That's the same Messiah that, the, that, that Zechariah prophesied of when he said, because of the blood of his covenant, God will release his prisoners from waterless cisterns, the pit. Do you see this? Because of the blood of Jesus, God will raise us who are united to him by faith out of the pit of spiritual death. The book of Romans tells us that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us and will raise us from the dead. That has happened to all Christians spiritually. And it will happen when Jesus returns to all Christians physically. Man, this is good news today. Family, it is that same power by which God alone saves us from spiritual death and causes us to be born again. It is that same power by which we live our lives as worship. It is that same power by which we can die to ourselves daily. This, this is the power of the living God. Jesus died so we would worship. When we gather together as people saved by God, living for God, dying to ourselves, we gather in the power of the Holy Spirit who raised our Lord Jesus from the grave. The good news today is that Jesus died, went down to the pit to draw us out and give us a new song so that we can live our lives in worship to the glory of God alone. This is how worship is to spread to the nations. Do you remember what I said before? Missions exist because worship doesn't. There will be a multitude from every nation, from every tribe, from every people and language knowing and worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. John's revelation, the same John that wrote this gospel, he makes that clear. Jesus is currently drawing all men, people from all nations, Jew and Gentile, to worship him. If you don't know Jesus, man, call on his name today. Repent and turn to him. If we have any leaders in here, come, come forward. If you need prayer, man, come see one of our leaders. If you, if you want to come to Jesus today, Man, pray. Come see someone if you need to talk. Jesus died so we would worship. Because we stand here in the presence of the Holy Spirit, let's lift our voices in worship. This new song we've been given is people who have been redeemed from the pit. Let's sing it out with everything we have. Let's live our lives in worship dying to ourselves, living for Christ. Let's tell the world what Jesus has done and by the power of the Holy Spirit, raising spiritually dead people to life, Christ will continue to draw all men to himself. Let's continue to worship. Amen. Thanks for streaming this audio from Transformation Church RVA located in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, check out our website at www.transformationrva.com.